Good morning, Daniel Rumby. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Richard. I'm, I'm pretty good, thank you. Good. Nice to be back, isn't it? Really good to be yes. back. And a bit of Madge to start the uh, the program there, like a virgin. Yes. Because, uh, well, Madge hype has broken out. If you were watching Graham Norton last night, she had, uh, he, sorry, he had Madge on for uh, the whole of the show, uh, talking about her uh, little film that's coming out next uh, yes. next weekend. Uh, which will, I think it's, it is the next week, isn't it? Uh, yes, next WE, Friday, yes. Which is the other film about um, King Edward VIII that's come out in the last 18 months. Yeah. And uh, we were just... Uh, I was jogging your knowledge while we were getting ready for the show. Of course, that song features at the start of Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs because there is a big discussion uh, between all the members of the heist gang about whether it's actually to do with a girl or whether it's to do with losing one's virginity. Yes. And then, no, yes. middle-aged men talking about 80s pop songs. It's quite funny. It is indeed, yes. So, uh, yes, we will have um, much to talk about uh, next Saturday, I'm sure. Absolutely. And the two stars of the film were also on last night. Uh, actually, more interesting than uh, Madonna, but uh, I suppose I'm not allowed that, to say that, that really. That doesn't entirely surprise me when it comes to films, but we'll, we'll come to WE next week. Yeah. I don't want to slide <coughs> Donna off in advance. Lots to talk about this week. Um, I have to say, and we'll cover some of them during the show, there seems to be more hype and excitement about uh, films in the last uh, couple of weeks, um, certainly amongst people of my age, than there has been for a, a long time. And mm -hmm. we'll get to one or two of them uh, during the uh, during the course of the uh, during the course of the show, I'm sure. But uh, let's start with local films. Which right. Isn't going to take very long because there isn't much on. There's nothing going on at Annick this week at all. Uh, if you want to see what's going on um, next week and later on in the month, it's www.annickplayhouse.co.uk. And just one going on at uh, the Maltings in Berwick, and that's today and tomorrow, uh, 12.30 lunchtime. It's after Christmas. No, I, I don't think it's first-rate, Ardman, by any stretch of the imagination. I was watching The Wrong Trousers again over the Christmas break, and no, it's still great, that moment where Feathers McGraw lands in the milk bottle. Um, yeah, I think it's okay. Young children will enjoy it. Just don't expect a masterpiece. And then uh, next week, which we'll cover next Saturday, absolutely cracking programme at the Maltings, but because it's next week, we'll talk about it next Saturday. But look at their website if you want to plan ahead. You're such uh, a tease. I yes. am indeed. We'll so, talk about it, but then we won't. Yeah. Shall we do the top ten yes, instead? Yes, we shall. At number ten, it is Hugo. Which is Martin Scorsese returning to form. I'm surprised that it hasn't taken more money considering the Scorsese brand. Many people may have been put off by the 3D, but I think this is one film which... The 3D isn't necessarily, isn't, isn't necessarily essential, but you could argue that it adds something on the grounds that three, it's a film about the history of cinema, and 3D is as old as cinema itself. I mean, the, the film makes big reference to the early films of the Lumiere Brothers, you know, Train Arriving at the Station, which was remade in stereoscopic vision. But I really like all the touches in it about the, the mechanics and origins of cinema, but it's, it's a family film. It's Martin Scorsese's first use certificate film, and great performances by Asa Butterfield and Chloe Moretz, and yeah, it's, it's thoroughly recommended for all the for all ages and number nine Halle Berry John Bon Jovi Robert De Niro and many others slammed by the critics sort of mixed opinions from the audiences really it's uh, New Year's Eve um I'm glad it's on the way out it's wretched Gary Marshall has been going downhill ever since well ever since the camera stopped rolling on Pretty Women and Pretty Women when he which he started his career with was you know a, the definition of a decent film 
but since then he squandered whatever promise he had and no it's a bunch of famous people hanging around paying the rent and enjoying each other's company at our expense critics and audience alike loving the number eight film the artist this is the one which is getting all the hype and i i think we made it film of the fortnight when we did our last uh, show of the year yeah. before the review of the year i don't want to say too much about it simply because well, A, everybody seems to love it, and B, there's a strong chance I'll be seeing this tonight, so I'll report back. Tell us more next Saturday. So who's being the tease? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on to number seven, and it's Goon. Which is pleasantly surprising, actually. I mean, Sean William Scott, the lead actor, is normally very annoying. I mean, he's most famous for playing uh, Stifler in the American Pie films, which, you know, American Pie is pretty good. American Pie 2, just about okay, but then by the time you get to American Pie the Wedding, they just... Nothing to go. More paper falling off the desk. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, so he's usually pretty annoying. And when I saw the trailer where, you know, it's about an ice hockey player who, you know, ends up beating people up, I thought, has it really got to the stage where they're having to remake Happy Gilmore? Because you remember Happy Gilmore is the Adam Sandler yeah. one where he, he's yeah. a violent ice hockey player who goes on to, to win the golf championship. But actually, the trailer is very misleading. It's actually quite decent. It's about, you know, a guy who has no actual playing talent but is brought on to be the goon of the hockey side as yeah. in the guy to get involved with all the fights which apparently in the north american leagues are actually well not legal but they're tolerated you know it's boise in the same way that dodgeball a true underdog story is boise but as sean william scott films go it's surprisingly okay yeah and if you ever go and watch whitley warriors it's uh tolerated and encouraged in the northeast of england as would you well. have seen much ice hockey when you were living in atlanta um not really because um they didn't have a um, uh, nhl franchise at the time uh it was an ihl one which uh it was okay it was atlanta nights i used to go see them probably a dozen times a season but uh it wasn't exactly uh, stellar ice hockey compared with the uh, the great nhl games but uh, uh i think i actually preferred english uh, league action at the time which i used to go see more regularly but uh i said amazingly i used to go watch uh, whitley every week and now i rarely get down there but that's a whole different story yes get your diaries out 15th of February, Annick Playhouse is going to be Puss in Boots, currently number six in the charts. Yeah, uh, you, haven't, you haven't seen it then yet? No, and uh, I am going. Okay. Um, I think it's pretty decent and good fun. Most of the appeal is in Antonio Banderas's voice, which is fantastic. I put the skin I live in as my... Do you want me to just wait until no, you finish? I'm just rattling papers while yeah, I'm talking. Yeah, I put Antonio Banderas's the, um, performance in The Skin I Live In in my top ten of the year. I, no, it's... The story is all over the place, but it's charming and funny. You should see it in 2D, which, of course, the Playhouse will, because they don't have 3D facilities. If nothing else, it's better than the third and fourth Shrek films, because it's more concerned with being funny than being sort of arch and postmodern. Right, another children's animation at number five, uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Chip Erect. Which is terrible. I mean, it... It's interesting that, that Puss in Boots and that are close together because, of course, that's an example of doing the Shrek thing right, and then this is an example of doing the Shrek thing wrong because the, the later Shrek films did. The Shrek films were always about, you know, the adults will get one sort of joke, the children will get another sort of joke, and they'll meet in the middle through a third sort of joke. And in the first two films, that worked really well. The problem with Alvin and the Chipmunks chipwrecked is that all the kind of the jokes like the castaway references will go over the very young people's heads the people who are supposed to be the target audience for this and no i think i've we've the first two were all right but i think I, we've just run out of patience with the horrible sort of screechy pop song stuff okay never one for your diaries it's going to be the uh, 10th of february i think i've written it correctly there at the playhouse the girl with the dragon tattoo which is no a stylish remake by david fincher it, but it is 
I think is I gave it a good review before Christmas, but the more I think about it, the more indifferent I feel towards it. I mean, it's faithful to the story, both of the book and of the original film, in such a way that makes us question why it was made, apart from people who can't be bothered to read subtitles. I mean, the, there was something in the news this week that David Fincher probably isn't going to direct the sequel, The Girl Who Played With Fire, because he wants to get 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea underway. Now, that's something I'm looking forward to. So... It's clearly more cinematic than the original because the first three Girl with Dra the first Girl with the Dragon Tattoo adaptation was made for Swedish television, then released internationally in cinemas. It's fine, but it's just not much more than that. And uh, no, aside from the decent performances, I'm not sure why we have it. Right now, this one has <coughs> created a lot of debate. Yes. The Iron Lady at number three. So there is a. Um, a school of thought that says it should never have been made because it's um, dealing with uh, difficult life-life illness of somebody who's still alive. Mm -hmm. There's a school of thought that says it should never have been made because she is the devil incarnate. And uh, other opinions <laughs> are available. <laughs> other opinions are available. And then there's a school of opinion that says Moral Street's brilliant and it's a film you must go watch. So where are you in that lot? I'm somewhere between all three. Um, and just to be contrary. It does seem to have incensed people on all sides of the political spectrum, and I've always maintained that cinema, when it's done well, it should not just be escapist. It's, it's, it's a very healthy response to go into a film and come out enraged by it. It's very, and it's, you know, something that, you know, if you're interested in film, you should try and see one at least genuinely annoying film once in a while, just so you appreciate the good ones when they come. I think, no, it's directed by Phil Lloyd, who is most famous for directing Mamma Mia, so you know it's not going to be the weightiest thing in the world. And she has come out in several interviews saying, well, actually, it's not a political story. It's a film about the loneliness of old age and yeah. you know, how the strongest woman in the world actually just became as feeble as the rest of us. The question I have is that if you want to do a film about the loneliness of age, which, you know, fair enough is, you know, a poignant subject matter. You know, before Christmas, we had um, Dreams of a Life in cinemas, which looked at, you know, the, the prospect of someone being neglected and being found in a flat dead after three yeah. years. The question is, if you're going to do that... Why would you do it about Margaret Thatcher? Because I don't think you can separate, or at least entirely separate, no, the definitive homes of, you know, Jeremy Brett in the 80s and 90s and Basil Rathburn before him in the 30s and 40s. But other adaptations that have, you know, succeeded yep. both of those, they'd become more concerned with the Gothic and Victoriana trappings than with the actual deduction of homes. And this is a way of sort of bringing it. And actually, there are, he has said that pretty much everything in the home stories they've done so far is canon. For instance, the examination of the mobile phone in the first series is effectively the examination of the watch in the sign of four, but it's just yeah. the thing that they would have had around that's yeah. the semis. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they're going to do with the final problem, because yeah. of course it's Holmes and Moriarty squaring off again. Yes. yes. And Andrew Scott is very creepy. So, But in terms of the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes film, I think it's pretty much as good as the first one. It is louder and longer and baggier, but the central relationship between Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law is still charming and enjoyable. And at number one, the guy who needs a haircut, it's Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible. Yeah, I need a haircut as well. It's getting very sort of long and fluffy. <laughs> um, I seem to be pretty much the only one who doesn't like this. Um, it, I don't have any great loyalty to the to the series. I mean, I don't think you do either from... I'm no, talking about. no. Although I do have a sort of soft spot for the first one because of its connection to Brian De Palma, though yeah. I wouldn't rush out to see it again. It's not so much a film as a Tom Cruise pension plan. Brad Bird, <laughs> I think, is a very overrated director. The only 
plus point I'll take from well, the two plus points I'll take from it. First of all, the IMAX sequences are quite striking, and I think that you know, when the Dark Knight Rises comes out and that will be shown in IMAX, that'll be superb. And the other thing is, I hope that Simon Pegg's fee for this film will go towards the budget of their third film with Edgar Wright called The World's End, which I think they're they've just finished the script of it so that won't be long till we get that so recommendations this week um quite, quite a mixed bunch yeah i would say sherlock holmes if you want something just pure and simple fun hugo if you if you have an interest in cinema and the artist for the same reasons and hugo particularly if you've got young children because i think they will they will enjoy it as well good uh, Shall we have some music and yes. then this week's cult film is ladyhawk it is Eddie Grant's and Electric Avenue. I, uh, I'm back from my holidays. I should have mentioned that earlier on. Oh, uh, sorry. I not that really. the not oh. the suntan goes down over radio very well, but uh, anyway, I was reading um, one of those trashy novels um, while I was away. Um, the central bit of the historical plot to which, alleged historical plot to which was that uh, the Bishop of Portsmouth um, arranged to have uh, Lord Kitchener assassinated in 1916. Just a bit of a preliminary, mm. because we're going to talk about a film with the bishop in. That's true. Um, Called La Ladyhawk. Yes, it is. Ladyhawk, 1985. Because I thought, um, being this the first week back, we wouldn't want anything sort of too heady and dark. Too and much blood and guts. Too much bad lieutenant, for instance. Yes. <laughs> Although it's still awkward. Uh, so we'll start with something light and jolly and fun and silly. So, Ladyhawk, 1985 medieval fantasy, directed by Richard Donner, who's had a very interesting career. Um... He cut his teeth in um, television in the sort of the late 60s and early 70s before going on to get his big screen break with the original version of The Omen. Would you seen The Omen first time round? I think I did, yes. Yes, because yes. it was one of the biggest films of the year in 1976, I think. Yeah, yes. What do you remember thinking of it? Were you scared? Uh, undoubtedly would have been, yes. Yes. I, I saw it again on television recently, and it, no, with the exception of a couple of sequences where they're talking about the common market, <laughs> I think it's still really, yeah. really creepy. You know, but th there's all sorts of stories about the production of The Omen being cursed, you know, with Gregory Peck's real-life son getting hurt during it and so on and so forth. And like I say, still very scary. He's most famous still for his involvement in the Superman series, which we touched on a little bit last year, but it's worth repeating because it's quite a, an interesting story of how a, a great director was kind of stopped in his tracks originally they were going to film superman one and two simultaneously from one massive script by mario puzo who wrote the godfather part one and two and also later wrote part three but that didn't exist at this point and so they were shooting them on all the scenes of superman one and then all the scenes of superman two together and they got about halfway through before they realized that actually we're not going to make the release date in time for the oscars so they stopped work on superman two finished Superman 1, which got entered for the Oscars in 1978, had the famous tagline, you'll believe a man can fly, won all sorts of awards for its special effects, introduced the world yeah. to Christopher Reeve, reintroduced the world to Marlon Brando as you know, many people's definitive Jor-El. Yes. There's a wonderful yeah. moment in, uh, as you can find on YouTube, of outtakes of that, because he did all his... When he was doing Superman, he was reading all his lines off of cue cards and saying, <laughs> you know, the human spirit is this and this, commit this to yourself, Elal, Kal-El. Ralph, whatever your name is. <laughs> Trust Brando. So, after the success of Superman 1, they, they went back to use, you know, all the half, the half of the film had already yeah. been shot, but there were disagreements between Donna and the producers over what to do, because Donna said, I want to keep with the Puzo script, I want the Christ allegory stuff, I want the serious yeah. treatment of the character. But the Salkin said, no, you made loads of money, let's make it more campy and silly yeah. to bring in the teenage audience. So Donna was booted off and replaced by your favourite director, Richard Lester, yes. who finished yeah. off the second one and then did the third one and then you get the franchise. And so you have 
a guy who's sort of booted off and has to watch basically his baby then get yeah. turned into something horrible well not horrible but something by his taste that yeah. isn't what superman should be and take loads of money and there's about 20 different versions now of superman 2 where fans have basically taken out individual bits <laughs> and replaced them and yeah. of course in 2006 there's the richard donner cut which is the closest to his yeah. vision he came to this product after a couple of flops, um, Inside Movies and The Toy, but he'd recently sort of gone back on form with The Goonies in the 1985 notes, the classic mid-80s, almost Spielberg story. I think Spielberg produced it, actually, of, you know, a bunch of boys who find this treasure map and go looking for gold and have to tackle yeah. pirates, and that launched the career of Sean Astin, who played Sam in Lord of the Rings. Um, made on a budget of about $20 million and just about broke even on first release. So, you know, not a disastrous on Scott Pilgrim's scale yeah. um and i don't mean that necessarily in a bad way but no it wasn't exactly a big hit of the summer of 1985 so the plot it, it's a little bit confusing but stay with me um it's set somewhere in 12th century europe in the town of aquila and we begin with a shot of a thief called philippe the mouse gaston who's played by matthew broderick just before he was famous. I think he'd done war games at this point, but this is still yeah. before Ferris Bueller, so he was not a pin-up yet. Uh, so he's a thief. He's, he's sort of tunnelling his way out of uh, an underground prison where he's going, from which he's going to be taken to be executed, escapes out of the city through the sewers and goes on the run, while fleeing from the soldiers of the scenery tuned Bishop of Aquila, played by John Wood. Uh, he is apprehended by a mysterious black knight who reveals himself to be the former captain of the King's Guard, Etienne of Navarre, who's played by Rutger Hauer, who was of course in Blade Runner yeah. and uh, we talked about him with Tom Davidson all those months ago because he's in The Hitcher and this was just before yeah. he did The Hitcher um, so check the podcast for that and now he's this mysterious black knight who's got a massive sword and a black stallion and he's got this uh, very loyal hawk on his uh, shoulder which goes everywhere with him and he says to Philippe no I've rescued you for a reason I need your knowledge of how to get back in the city so I can return and kill the bishop they stop for the night somewhere, and Matthew Broderick wakes up in the middle of the night to find Navarre gone, and uh, the eagle gone as well. Just this this beautiful, ethereal woman called Isabeau, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, who is uh, tending to this wild and rather feral-looking wolf. And uh, when he... When, um, Broderick asks um, how about it the next morning. He says, no, what woman? I never saw a woman. What are you talking about? Completely denying it. Turns out that Navarre and Isabeau are lovers yeah. who have been cursed by the bishop to be ever be separated. So that by day, Isabeau is a hawk, hence Lady Hawk, and by night, Navarre is a wolf so that they can never actually be together yeah. and can't touch. And they have to track down an old monk called Imperius, played by Leo McKern, who betrayed the lovers in the first place, but now is probably the only one who could break the curse yeah so like you were saying it's it's very difficult to follow and a bit yes. silly but Good plausible plots yes completely <laughs> plausible um so when it comes to 80s fantasy for which i have a large amount of affection i have to say there are three broad categories into which the films can fall you can either get those like paul verhoeven's flesh and blood which is you know set during the crusades it's about mercenaries and it's got swashbuckling and blood and so forth and there's a there's a conversation about hanging in there as you'd expect from paul verhoeven but it does get the balance between substance and silliness spot on because you know on the one hand you've got those sort of the paul verhoeven classic battle scenes where it's really painful but you're also grinning all the way through <laughs> married with all the, the machiavellian yeah. politics and it's very dark and it is sprawling you know it's one of verhoeven's longer and bangier films but it does have a big effect so you get those that really work 
Then you get the ones like John Borman's Excalibur, which, you know, in the case of John Borman's Excalibur, it's, you know, this is the definitive version of the Arthurian myth, but they take themselves so seriously that they just end up being dull. Yeah. No, good performance by Helen Mirren, but other than that, there's not much in it, and the costumes are a bit too um, sparkly. It's like they're all made of tinfoil. And then you get those who are, that are totally, utterly and enjoyably silly, and into this category we put Lady Hawk. Yeah. So first, as I said in the build-up, it's of historical interest in terms of Richard Donner's career. I mean, there was a certain amount of bitterness on his part due to what had happened to him on Superman, which I don't think he's entirely lost. But it's interesting for someone who, A, has has so much right to be bitter because he was mistreated by the Salkins that he could actually come back and make something so sprightly and fun and sort of zippy. And also it's interesting that a guy who's place in film history is defined by mainstream blockbusters because he would later make the lethal weapon series it's interesting that he can make something so delightfully small and odd and yeah. you know widgety in amongst all those kind of fantastic big films with no mel gibson or indeed um, christopher reeve like many 80s fantasies there are aspects of lady hawk that have not dated very well um the first problem is the soundtrack uh, which is composed by andrew powell who uh, are you do you remember the alan parsons project Yes. Yeah, because it was Andrew Parsons who, sorry, Alan Parsons who had edited or or sound engineered The Dark Side of the Moon, and yeah. he saw the success of that as a, as a reason for him to have a pop career of his own. Yeah, and yeah. They, they released quite a lot of albums, so he was the other guy in the Alan Parsons project you know, who composed it. The soundtrack was nominated for a Saturn Award in 1985, but it has since become regarded in some quarters as one of the worst ever composed. <laughs> um, right. I mean, it was quite fashionable in the mid 80s for for pop groups to do soundtracks because, you know, it was cheaper to make synthesized music than hiring out a big score, particularly if you were working with someone like Jerry Goldsmith who needed, you know, 16 violins (laughs) all the time. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that 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 trend started in a way with the Bond series and, uh, but in a way, the the thing that really kicked off that wave is Toto's soundtrack to David Lynch's Dune. You know, and of all the things wrong with David Lynch's Dune, that's actually not one of the (laughs) things. The Toto soundtrack's actually quite good. I mean, the problem with the PAL soundtrack is that it goes too far in that sort of synthy yeah. way even to be sort of enjoyed ironically you know there's overproduced sort of a bouncy pop timbre and it is inherently seen there'll be moments like where they're sort of riding along on the uh, on the landscape in a very sort of grand way and the soundtrack going it is a bit jarring you do get used to it so yes exactly um then you come to the visuals which it's it's extraordinary really because they managed to look lavish and professional while still feeling a bit ropey and cheap yeah it's no shot by vittorio storaro who shot apocalypse now so (laughs) and that's a bit of a leap yeah and you can clearly see that you know he's not lost a lot of his touch because there's lots of no very blood red sunsets yeah all throughout which of course no there's loads of those in apocalypse now and uh, no the sunsets are of course central to the plot in this so it's right that they should be beautifully shot but in amongst all the terrific scenes of no frozen lakes and dark forests and these very crisp skylines there are lots of numerous scenes particularly with you know, around the sort of the village set which looked like off cuts from Monty Python and the Holy Grail <laughs> now don't get me wrong I love Holy Grail but that's a film which is very much you know the low budget aesthetic works to its advantage whereas where you've got no, yeah. you can't cut from you no know, the sunset from Apocalypse <laughs> Now into a sort of wooden shack, which is clearly it's a bit bonkers. Yes. yes, exactly. So there's a feeling of cutting corners. I mean, twenty million even in the 1985 was not that much money because there was quite high inflation in that yeah. time. There was. There's also a sense of cutting corners because of the paucity of special effects. I mean, it's it's odd that a film which is about sort of people changing into animals every day should be quite so coy about the transformations i mean there's a few really good shots where michelle pfeiffer's 
where it's a close-up on Michelle Pfeiffer's eye, and as she turns into an eagle, it sort of widens and yeah. dilates, yeah. which is, you know, it's sort of, it's like a focus pull. Yeah. You can do that quite easily. But all the sort of the big transformations, you know, in terms of, Rutger Hauer turning into the wolf and so forth. They're done off screen, so it's like, not, there was, there's several occasions when no, Matthew Broderick comes out of a barn where they're staying, or comes out of a tent, notice that the, that the, uh, the sun is setting or something, so, um, I'd better slip out for a moment. It's like they're going off <laughs> yeah. stage to change costumes. No, granted, you wouldn't have had the CG wizardry that we take yeah. for granted, but you could have done something a bit better. I mean, this yeah. was only four years after the definitive werewolf transformation in American Werewolf, yeah. which did it on no, I think something like half of Lady Hawk's total budget. So you could have scrimped a little bit. Added to that, you have a number of very confusing uh, plot holes. I mean, there's the central thing about no. If you believe the central conceit, there's still the problem of you no know, clothes. You know, they keep they keep the same outfits throughout. But who's picking up all the all the dresses and so forth? Yeah, you know that sort of thing. Yeah, oh yes. Yeah. Yeah, what was some jolly, um, jolly green giant thing that was on TV? Um, jolly green giant. Oh. Oh, it'll come back to me, but... You're, you're, not, you're, talking, you're not talking about the David Prowse Green Cross Code thing, are you? No, he was um, the guy who turned into a big green monster. Uh, it'll come back to me, but anyway. Oh, Hulk. Yes. Hulk, that's it. Yes, and yes. what happened to his clothes? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh, so there's that problem, which is quite standard. Then there's the problem of memory. I mean, there's that device in horror of when someone turns into an animal, they don't remember what they did as an animal. So, for yeah. even, you know, in, in the case of American Werewolf, you'll get David Norton waking up in the bed after, after killing the guy on the tube and wondering what's happened. But the problem with this is, you no, know, that device is very standard and generally works. So how come the hawk remembers to stay with Rutger Hauer? Or come, how come the wolf doesn't eat the woman while he's in wolf form? Yeah. No, so there's, that's never explained. And there's a couple of sort of continuity errors, like, you know, we're told that, you know, whenever it's daylight, Michelle Pfeiffer is an eagle, and there's a couple of moments when she's hanging off the battlements of a casting, like, it's clearly daylight, the sun's up, change! Just fall off and then fly off, and so <laughs> on. So there's all those sort of obvious little problems. I mean, you could almost argue that when sh the first Shrek film came out, it sort of half-inched the plot, but basically made it more consistent, because there's yeah. never any time when you see Fiona at night when she's not an ogre. Sorry if I've spoiled it, but it's ten years old, you should have seen <laughs> Shrek by now. So there are a number of problems with Lady Hawk. And to be honest, I don't care about any of them, because it's one of the most consistently entertaining films I've seen in the last, well, so I saw it about six months ago, something yeah. like that, and I still have a fond memory of it. Here's why I think it's so good. When we reviewed Logan's Run uh, last year, I said that once you stop trying to take it seriously and just enjoy it for what it is, that's ironically when all the big ideas and the emotions actually come to the fore and it sells itself as actually quite a good film. Yeah. And like Logan's Run, this is effectively held together by the barnstorming performance of one great actor. I mean, in the case of Logan's Run, it's Peter Ustinov turning up yeah. in the, yeah. the ruined Congress. In this case, it's Leo McKern, who, no, I will hold my hands up, is one of my favourite actors. He's that's one of great. these people, like Charles Gray, who, you know, I don't care who he's playing, but if he's in a film, it's better than it would have been automatically. Do you have your son? I mean, you weren't a child of the 60s, but you must have seen The Prisoner. Of course. Leo McCurdy, and he yes. used to be great. He was great in that. Yes, particularly in that episode, um, Once Upon a Time, yes. where he's trying to yeah. brainwash Patrick yeah. McGowan. It's fantastic. I mean, I first heard about Liam McConnell, first came across him, because uh, I grew up with the BBC radio adaptations of Tintin. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he is still, for my mind, the definitive Captain Haddock. Yeah. <laughs> no blistering barnacles. I'll just go back there to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> so that. And he's, you know, most famous for, you know, for people of a certain age, he's most famous for playing Horace Rumpole in Rumpole of the Bailey, yeah. which is very, very good. He also, I suppose, for people of a... 
Now, going a little further back to the 60s, he played Cromwell in A Man for All Seasons, and he was, he was one yeah. of the best things in that film. But, but he had, he's interesting because he had culted cult status in the past. I mean, like you say, he was one of the recurring characters in The Prisoner, and I think he was, he's regarded as the best number two, yes. if that makes sense. Um, but he was in The Day of the Earth Caught Fire, which is, you know, a film about, uh, you know, the earth heating up yeah. and everybody dying. Yeah. He plays a reporter in that. And, of course, in The Omen, he's the mad archaeologist who tells Gregory Pack how he's going to kill his son. But whereas that last performance is a kind of silly cameo in an yeah. otherwise sort of serious and creepy film, here, McKern is the one who actually brings the weight and the gumption and the gravitas yeah. to what, in other times, could be a very facile concoction. His delivery with that sort of rolling and speaking like this and <laughs> no, it's wonderful yeah. it does illuminate all the cracking lines in lady hawk's script i mean most of the time the wisecracks will go to matthew broderick because he's the one trying to sell it to the younger yeah. audience and there's all sorts of soliloquies about him talking to god about no no you told me always to tell the truth and now i'm so confused um but there's wonderful moments this, which mckern gets the first is when they come to the ruin castle the, the the knights of the bishop come to the castle where he's you know sort of hiding yeah. navarre and um one of the knights sort of storms across the drawbridge falls through because it's all rotten and he looks down to the moat and says always walk on the left side <laughs> <laughs> but better than yeah. that and this is the line that stuck with me through all the film Matthew Broderick brings uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in hawk form to um, Imperius to be sort of fixed because it's been accidentally shot by an arrow and wounded, yeah. not mortally wounded, but in some trouble. And he kind of sees him coming from the battlements and says, oh good, bring that bird up here, we'll eat it. No, you can't eat this bird. And he just kind of furrows his brow and goes, what? Is it Lent again already? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's just fantastic. I mean, the other performances in the film are also pretty good. I mean, Matthew Broderick is on pretty fine form. Yeah. And like I said, this was before Ferris Bueller, but you know, he's very much on form as the wisecracking uh, holy fool, if you like. Uh, Rutger Hauer is naturally suited to the historical romp. I mean, he does that thing. I think I, when we did the, the Hitcher with Tom Davidson, I said it's that ability to be threatening and charming at the same time, which he does so well. And if you've seen him in Flesh and Blood, where he's absolutely enjoying himself no end, he's every bit as good here. And although Michelle Pfeiffer's hair is straight out of a pop video because it's sort of <laughs> cropped and full of hairspray yeah. and it never moves she is sort of ethereal and vulnerable and you do find that sort of thing of seeing her features in the face of the hawk even though it might actually be a, which is a sign that you're actually bonding with the characters and actually having two charismatic performances like those of Hauer and Pfeiffer it does go some way to making the romance at the heart of the film believable I and mean, it's like the thing that when old-fashioned melodrama is at its best the more grandiose the situation is, the more believable it seems to make the yeah. relationship. There's not many films in which that works, but there are occasions on which that really does. And because it's, you know, it's a medieval romping fantasy involving sort of swords and scenery between bishops and mad monks who betrayed love and so forth, it feels like there's a lot more at stake for the two lovers than if this was just a sort of mainstream frothy rom-com out of man and woman who yeah. meet and so forth. I mean, it's a variation on the age-old tale of you know, two people destined to be together but cursed to be apart, and it does it that in a very interesting uh, way and you are pulled in there is a big sense of emotional pull which is evident in one particular sequence where matthew brought they're camping near a frozen lake and matthew broderick wakes early just before the sun comes up to find michelle pfeiffer lying next to navarre in wolf form mm. and there's a split second as the sun is just rising when um Rutger Hauer changes from the wolf back into human form and they look eye to eye and they just sort of reach oh. out with their hands and at the last minute before they touch the hand turns into a talon and she flies away yeah. and Rutger Hauer sort of beats the earth and screams with a wolfish howl and it's <laughs> fantastic but that's a, I had to stop myself welling up at that yeah which is sure a, yeah, yeah exactly and 
in line of you no know, all the best medieval action it's you no know, there's good romping sort of swordplay stuff i mean considering donna's bad feelings towards richard lester and no who can blame him as i've said it's ironic that the action sequences actually are quite like those in the three and four musketeers in the sense that there's lots of swords yeah lots of people with funny hair wandering around and sort of bashing <laughs> each other and yeah lots of carts being overturned and so on and so forth and that's pretty inventive slapstick you know with uh rutger Hauer sort of headbutting all the soldiers and matthew Broderick running over the top of uh, uh sort of um a pergola to escape from the soldiers poking swords at the window. It's, it's clearly been choreographed very well. The best moment in the film from that point of view comes at the end when there's basically a solar eclipse which has broken the curse and the two lovers are together in human form and the bishop moves towards Pfeiffer with his sort of the, the pointed end of his staff saying, yeah. well, if I can't have you, no one can. And Rukahawa turns around with his massive sort of eight-foot sword, flings it the length of a church, he goes into John Wood as the bishop, through the back of the chair and out the other <laughs> side, and he's kind of sitting down and going, eh, it's wonderful. So to sum up, it's a definite guilty pleasure, and I mean, all the flaws in it are absolutely in plain sight, you know, it is incredibly silly, the soundtrack is jarring, the special effects are, you know, limited, but none of them can eclipse just how enjoyable it is. I mean, you compare it to something more mainstream like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which was just a bit dull. And you just know, if you put all the concerns about the mechanics of it aside, it's really great. I think it's not Donna's best film by any means, and compared to something like Richard Ridley Scott's Legend, it's perhaps not quite up there. But for pure and simple fun, it takes some beating. And a fun way to start the year. Absolutely. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Yes, Richard and Dale and Daniel Mumby. And it's time to look at the new releases. But before that, it's number 50 next week. Yes, the 50th instalment of the movie. I can't believe we've been doing it this long. Yes, indeed. So our cult film will be Silent Running from 1972. And uh, we shall mark the occasion in some way that we haven't thought of yet. Yes. Bring a cake in or something. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'll make a cake. Yes. <laughs> oh, very good. Um, and, of course, we were looking forward to uh, the final um, Sherlock Holmes, which is on BBC tomorrow, and it should be great. But, of course, mm -hmm. Martin Freeman, Hobbit, the hype started already. Yes, it has. Because the trailer for uh, An Unexpected Journey, which is part one of The Hobbit, has been out for some time. And I usually try and resist getting involved in sort of the big teasing build-up, but I'm very excited. Yeah, you really, can't really not get into it. I mean, yes. it's by far a better book. So it, I am really looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it. I'll dispute whether it's a better book, but that's, that's irrelevant because yes. Peter Jackson back on form by the looks of yeah, things. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. Right. On to the new releases, we'll rattle through a couple and then come back in a bit more detail. Useful Life, first of all. Uh, yeah, which is the latest in a long line of films about the cinema. I mean, this year we've already had, you no know, Martin Scorsese's Hugo and uh, The Artist, which, like I say, I'll be seeing, if not tonight, then at some point in the next few days. So, you, long history, I mean, I still maintain the best film ever made about the mechanics of cinema is Michael Powell's Peeping Tom, which we will talk about in a few weeks' time, um, no, for reasons that will become clear. Um, this was Uruguay's entry into the 2010 Oscars for Best Foreign Language Film. It's directed by Federico Varoj, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and it follows an arthouse cinema which is, you no. Know, very committed to educating its clientele and encouraging intelligent discussion, but it's financially on the rocks and yeah. struggling to stay afloat. It's very short. No, it's 67 minutes long, so it all, if it was you no know, a few minutes shorter, it would have qualified actually as a long short rather than a, yeah. a short long, if you see yeah. what I mean. I think it's got very limited appeal in terms of... No, I mean, I'm interested in films about cinema sort of self-reflexively, but it, unlike Hugo and the artist, it doesn't 
make a conscious effort to reach out to the, the the casual viewer. So I think if you're interested in in how in the history of cinema, if you like cinema paradiso a lot, then go and see it. Otherwise, you're not missing much. Next one's a Japanese animation, Tatsumi. Yeah, which is an animated film about the life and works of um, again another pronunciation, Yoshihiro Tatsumi, who was a famous uh, manga artist. He apparently, I mean, I'm not familiar with his work at all, um, but he apparently brought manga, which is sort of a different style of animation, to anime anime to a more adult audience, not adult in terms of pornographic audience. Yeah. I mean, there is the hentai tradition in, Jap in Japan, which again, I don't know much about, but still. Uh, directed by Eric Chu, it's a sort of animated documentary of sorts, so you know, bits of it are about his life, bits of it are recreations of his work, bits of it are other stuff. Um, I don't know how wide a release it's going to get, and it probably will have more of a life on DVD. I mean, I know at least one person who obsessively collects manga and has everything that Studio Ghibli's ever done, so this is clearly directed towards that sort of person. Most of the reviews have said that there are sort of interesting moments in it, but the tone is off-puttingly slushy, and from what I've gathered about Tatsumi's work, it's quite sort of pessimistic and dark and bleak and so that sort of tone works against it so worth seeing if you have an interest in manga or anime but again otherwise you're not missing much right the next one amongst people of my age at least i've created huge excitement warhorse those who think it's one of the best books ever written and it's a film that needed to be made those who think it's the best one of the best plays ever put on in um, in in the west end and a little bit worried that the uh, the film won't do the play justice. Mm -hmm. uh, some a little worried that the film will be too much to uh, to work through because of it's uh, not easy subject matter. It's created huge excitement. I think it's going to be a big hit, isn't it? I think it will be a big hit. I mean, it'll be interesting to see where it comes out in terms of the awards because I think it's got some Golden Globe attention already. So it's the new film by Steven Spielberg, who is churning them out at the moment because his last film, The Adventures of Tintin, came out three months ago. Yeah. And he gave an interview yesterday said that he's already finished shooting uh, Lincoln, his you know, biopic yeah. of Abraham Lincoln, which he, there were famous photos linked on the internet of Daniel Day-Lewis having breakfast in um, full-on full Abraham Hamlinkin beard and looking scarily like him. So yeah. I'm looking forward to that. So no, because they based on the book by Michael Morpurgo, who's the children's or was the children's laureate, and that was yeah. then turned into a stage. But I haven't read the book, I haven't seen the play, so I can only comment on the film. But essentially, it's a man called Albert who is from uh, the Devon countryside, and he is uh, he enlists in World War One. He develops a relationship with a horse whom he calls Joey, and it follows their journey from the Devon countryside through to France, and eventually ending up on no man's land itself. And uh, along the way, he meets a, a, a group of characters, you know, he meets some sort of farming community and so forth, and he meets a very difficult soldier played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who is, of yeah. course, Sherlock Holmes. Um, I'm in two minds about it. I mean, like I say, I don't have any great expectation in terms of the book or the play, although I've heard very good things about both. The thing I'm in two minds about is that what kind of Steven Spielberg film this is, because the general rule with Steven Spielberg is that he's at his best when he's doing deliberately sentimental, popcorn, light-hearted, yeah. fun stuff. And when he does serious stuff like Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, he just gets sort of bogged down. And he starts out with very good intentions, but then there's always a moment when he feels the need to, to pull back and give us a happy ending. Whereas, I mean, you, com you compare Schindler's List to The Pianist. You know, The Pianist yeah. is the film that really works because it's really tough to watch, which yeah. Schindler's List cops out a bit. I mean, there's still interesting things in Schindler's List, but it's at best an admirable failure. And no, there are clearly things in Warhorse that are very deliberately sentimental, very deliberately old-fashioned, and the storyline is episodic in the sense that it's you no, know, 
moving from A to B and meeting different groups of people along the way, but once you've met them, they sort of go. And I mean, you could argue, they sort of disappear. I mean, you could argue that that's because some of them are getting killed. But you know, again, it's not the most narratively cohesive thing, and that might be one way in which fans of the book or the play might be disappointed, because yeah. as far as I gather, the book's narrative is quite strong. Yes. So it's, it's almost as though he's taken... His the approach to filmmaking that he does best, which is you know, the sentimental stuff, but do it you no know, absolutely genuine sentimentality, which he does very well. Yeah. But sort of uprooted it and put it in a serious film place, if you see what I mean. And I'm, I think it is going to divide audiences because I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure that people will go to it and you no, know, there'll be not a dry eye in the house because yeah. it's very moving. But I'm not sure that he's entirely succeeded in marrying the sort of that sort of heartache and so forth to a very dark subject matter, which is, of course, the First World War, where, you know, yeah. which was, at the time, before people knew there was going to be a second one, it was the worst conflict that anyone had ever seen. So I think it's one to see. I, I wouldn't be too sure about taking children under the age of 12 to see it, because yeah. it is, there is a lot of emotional stuff in it. Yeah. But, yeah, I think it's... I'm cautiously optimistic about it. I don't think it's going to be one of his great works, but out of all his more serious stuff. I think it's more honest about the sentimentality. Yeah. I think it's probably one I'm going to get a lot of feedback on because I do know a lot of people are intending to go and see it. Yeah, I probably will see uh, it. Including one or two who are going to read the book first. So that'll be interesting to... Uh, I'm just going to move on then because yes. it, it will be out of the cinema in three or four weeks. Oh, probably. You can read a book quickly. Yes. It's I, I can't. That's the problem. Yes, which is the film of the week. It's the new film by Steve McQueen. No, not that Steve McQueen. He's been dead 30 years. Um, this is this Steve McQueen is the Turner Prize winning artist turned filmmaker who previously helmed Hunger, which was the film about the IRA hunger striker Bobby Sands, which launched the career of Michael Fassbender. In this film, he plays an, a New Yorker who is a sex addict. Uh, no, a Don Juan or a nymphomaniac, whatever yeah. phrase you want to use. Uh, no, and he gets visited by his uh, sort of wayward sister, played by Kerry Mulligan, who's in an education and uh, Wall Street money never sleeps. And uh, she starts having an affair with his boss, and they have a very fractured relationship, and it all, go and it all falls apart. It's a very much when Darren Aronofsky made Requiem for a Dream, which was the film you know, which launched the career, the adult career of Jennifer Connelly after her initial career yeah. in Labyrinth and so forth. He was he came out in lots of interviews saying it's not about drug addiction, it's about addiction in and of itself. You know what makes someone an addict and how do they deal with it? And it's about the destruction of the self. And it's very much the same here. You have a film which is very ambiguous, very uncompromising in its depiction of nymphomania, and particularly uncompromising in the way that people. The idea that people seek those limitless amounts of pleasure for the destruction of the self. I mean, there's a phrase in French, I think, petit mort, which is a way of, you know, a philosophical way of describing the orgasm, which is a little death. Yeah. Apologies, there are children listening, but, you know, it's an 18 certificate film. I don't know how wide a release it's going to get. I like Steve McQueen a lot. I think Hunger is a very powerful piece of work. And, you know, if you can handle the difficult subject matter, you should definitely see it. Right. Paul Bettany film next, great actor, is uh, Margin Call. Yeah, he's a, he's a great actor. It's the debut film by J.C. Chander, and it's a financial services drama. Um, set uh, in a financial services office in 2008, just before the whole crisis with Lehman Brothers and so forth uh, broke loose, and, uh, you know, people are going around handing out redundancy payments. They discover that one character, played by Stanley Tucci, whom I think is great, as he's laid off, he says, you know, I found out the company's got loads of toxic assets if you don't do something about it it's going to go under and it basically follows the actions of this group of people including kevin spacey and demi moore i think yeah who uh have to basically sort the company out and they've got 24 hours to do it now the 
well, there was there was a film not so long ago called The Company Men with Ben Affleck and Kevin Costner, in which I gave a, quite a bit of stick to in terms of ha sort of showing yeah. how seemingly ordinary people deal with the financial crisis firsthand. But I think this is a lot better because it's no, it's more intense. First of all, I mean, for a debut effort, it's very slick and very stylish, and that does get the best out of the cast, particularly Paul Bettany, who is playing the sort of audience's way in, yes. saying, you know, "Explain yeah. to me how the stock market works," and so forth. And there's a wonderful line in it where Jeremy Irons playing the boss says, "Explain it to me." as if you were talking to a little fluffy Labrador. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's very right. good. I mean, the thing, the other touchstone for it in my book is, um, did you ever see Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? With Al Pacino no. in, but that, that also had Kevin Spacey, yeah. you know, adapted from the David Mamet play. And I've always had a problem with that film, but watching the trailer for this made me want to go and revisit it, because, no, I think it's a good, solid, intense, topical thriller, and Paul Bettany's very good. And do we finish with the turkey of the week? We do, and I'll do this very quickly. Darkest Hour, a new film by Chris Gorak, who previously directed Right at Your Door, produ uh, produced by Tima Mumbatov, who did Wanted. Story is, people in Moscow, um, suddenly all the power goes out, turns out invisible electromagnetic aliens have landed, and people start getting killed. Uh, basically, good special effects, but nothing else. The no proper worked in the six Yes, would have worked <laughs> in the 60s, but no, it's essentially a showcase for special effects. It's incredibly boring. It'll be out in a couple of weeks, don't you? So, a good week, generally. Recommendations? Shame for all those over 18 and Warhorse for all those under it. Right. Yes. Is that the right way around? Yes, because yeah. 18, you can only yeah. see shame if you're oh, 18 right. and over. Oh, I, yes, I get the point. Right. Yes. Okay. So, that's end of show number 49, show number 50, next Saturday, 10 till 11. Yes. And you're here before then? I'll be there on Thursday, 1 till 3, and hopefully, when we do show number 50, I'll get all the stuff done on time, rather than sort of rushing <laughs> it. <in. laughs> yes, yes. It's been a busy, busy week. Anyway, uh, Jerry G is going to be here between 12 and 5 this afternoon. Laura Wilkinson will be on between 5 and 7, but from me, Richard Dow and Daniel Mumby, Goodbye, have a great week, and we will see you next Saturday, 8 till 11. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.